You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. It's Infrastructure Week on Today Explained. You might have heard. We started the week talking about the current administration's plans and our forgetfulness when it comes to all that New Deal infrastructure we built a century or so ago. Then we talked about trains and why it's so dang expensive to build things in America. Then we flushed ourselves down a toilet to explore what's wrong with our wastewater systems. Yesterday, we talked about human infrastructure. And today, we're going to talk to an infrastructure human, President Biden's Secretary of Transportation, Mayor Pete Buttigieg who, when we spoke, didn't seem that sour that he didn't get to be president. I mean, you know, you get to be the secretary of planes, trains, and automobiles, but also a lot of things people don't think about as much, from maritime to uh, uh, things like commercial space travel, which, which had a big week and in, in which we oversee in some respects. But the, the biggest thing is that so many of the most important issues of our time are at stake in transportation. Uh, transportation is the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. So if you care about climate change, this is one of the biggest places you could do something about it. Uh, transportation turns out to play a huge role in racial equity uh, and economic justice in this country. And again, there's a chance to do a lot about that. It's central in the economy. Uh, it's where a lot of the most interesting things that are going to shape our future are playing out, especially in this decade, in, in the 2020s. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, any day would be an exciting place to be. But at this moment, where it's also in the center of the domestic policy conversation in a way that, you know, transportation nerds don't get to uh, see that, that, you know, we don't get to see that kind of moment in the, in the sunshine uh, any old year. And, of course, the president himself really cares about transportation. Does that make you his favorite cabinet member? Do you know? Has he said it? Uh, I don't know about that, but it's definitely great to be working on something that the president cares about. I mean, you take something like passenger rail, right? Uh, and I think in any other administration, I would be confident of being the biggest passenger rail enthusiast on the team. But uh, it's always going to be second uh, second place to the president in this group, although I'm, I'm making it a close second. I'm 36 years old. I believe you're 39 years old. The president is 78 years old. The Baltimore and Potomac Tunnel, not far from where we are in Washington, D.C., is 148 years old. What is the plan for updating our aging and outdated infrastructure, Secretary? Look, we are coasting off of infrastructure investments and infrastructure decisions that were made one, two, five generations ago. 
And we've gotten away with it up to a certain point, disinvesting in in this country's uh, public resources for the last 40 years or so. But it's caught up to us. And you see it in crumbling uh, roads, bridges that have to be taken offline, or worse, that, that, that actually collapse. Uh, uh, so many areas that are a single point of failure where if something goes wrong, uh, an, an entire part of the economy could be jammed up. So we know that we have to do something and do something quickly. And that's what the bipartisan infrastructure framework is. This is the biggest investment that we've made in public transit, for example, ever as a country. Biggest investment in passenger rail since they set up Amtrak in the first place. Um, and uh, you go on and on down the list and, and, you know, partly in terms of taking care of what we have, like the example you raised, right? The, these tunnels that are, they were great. I mean, total state of the art a uh, hundred years ago. Um, but, you know, the times have changed. Um, but also areas that, that nobody was thinking about when they dug these tunnels, like, uh, you know, those tunnels probably ought to carry fiber optic cable while we're at it. And it's part of the vision to get every single American affordable, fast internet. Um, the, the fact that uh, it turns out lead pipes are not okay, and uh, there's no acceptable level of lead exposure for children, which is why we need to get 100% of those lead service lines taken care of. All of that's part of this package. And I don't think you have to be part of one political party or a political supporter of the president to see the urgency of getting that done, which is why it, it feels as we're moving this infrastructure vision through, it feels like one of the few areas left of actual bipartisan compromise or bipartisan agreement in domestic policy, which I'm hopeful if this goes well, we can build on in in some other areas too. Yeah, I I would love to talk a little bit about the politics here. We kicked off the week talking about the politics, talking about how there's these two plans. There's this bipartisan plan, and then there's this sort of budget reconciliation plan where the Democrats seemingly will have to go it alone. Why are there two plans? And can you explain what's in each of them. I think some people out there might find it a little confusing. Yeah, here's the way I think of it. Uh, all of this added together is the president's economic vision. It's how we not only respond to the moment, but make sure that Americans can thrive. And there are tons of pieces that go into that. It's roads and bridges. It's uh, child care. It, it's making sure that our housing uh, is improving, t- taking care of our, our health care infrastructure. Now, we had a certain way of breaking that down. Uh, the, the president had a jobs plan and a families plan. Admittedly, even that could overlap as, as you think about it. These issues touch each other, but we broke it down a certain way. And uh, that's evolved through time in these conversations with Congress. So now we have two chunks, right? One, the bipartisan infrastructure framework. These are mostly transportation infrastructure investments. Again, this is huge. This is $1.2 trillion over the coming years. And it's not just kind of renewing or reauthorizing what we always do. This is a generational investment. And these are things that we think a lot of Republicans can and, and should support, too. Then you have the second part. We like to think of it as infrastructure, too. We call it human infrastructure. But, but you know, it's, it's not worth getting bogged down in a definitional debate. The point is this is a set of really good policies that we need as a country, like making sure everyone can get paid family leave, something people in pretty much every other country take for granted, making sure that it is affordable uh, to have child care, getting everybody three- and four-year-olds uh, pre-kindergarten education and getting everybody access to community college. These things, by the way, I don't see why Republicans couldn't vote for this, but it sounds like most of them won't. Did you go into it knowing that they wouldn't? Did you break these into two separate buckets because you knew there wouldn't be bipartisan buy-in on this sort of human infrastructure spending? Yeah, the president's view is if there's something we can do together, if there's something that we could do on a bipartisan basis, then we should try. Uh, But there are also parts of his agenda that, that, that may not move that way. 
And you don't give up on those parts of, of the vision. You try to get them through, even if that means having to go it alone, like we did on the rescue plan that the American people overwhelmingly wanted to happen, but you just couldn't get Republicans on Capitol Hill to vote for it. So the president said, look, we need to do this, and we did it. Uh, so, so anyway, to, to get back to your original question, the way I would think of it is the part of the president's vision that we can do together with the other side of the aisle, we're going to do together. That's the bipartisan infrastructure framework. And the rest of it, we may have to do alone, but it's still worth doing. On the bipartisan bill, it seems like there's a lot of pushback about how it will be paid for. How are you meeting the arguments that the plan is unaffordable or that there's no solid plan to pay for it? So before we get into the details of the plan, let's just say, let's just point out that it doesn't make sense that the richest country in the world can't afford decent infrastructure, uh, right? We're, we're not even talking about, uh, you know, space cars or hoverboards for everybody. We're talking about stuff that people in a lot of other countries already have. We're talking about bringing our standard of passenger rail nearer to what they enjoy today in Morocco or Italy. If the richest country in the world can't have this, then then what are we even talking about? So, of course, we can afford it. The question is how. The question is how do you actually raise the revenue to do it? Now, the president uh, has been very flexible on this. He had one red line, and that was he made a promise that he's not going to raise taxes on anybody who makes less than 400000 bucks a year because he thinks uh, the majority of American families who are in that category are already paying more than enough. We also see some of the biggest corporations in this country making billions of dollars in profits, many of which paid zero, zero in taxes. We see some of the wealthiest Americans who, as a percentage rate, pay a lower income tax rate in effect than a school teacher or firefighter. It doesn't make sense. Americans agree. By the way, a lot of Republicans across America get that that doesn't make sense. And so the president put forward a way to pay for all this that is basically about asking corporations and the wealthy to pay their fair share. We've gone round and round on a lot of different ways to do it. And I, that, that's part of what's playing out even as we speak in the back and forth with the House and the Senate. Uh, and that's a natural, sometimes messy part of the legislative process. But the bottom line is, of course we can afford this as a country. And maybe even more importantly, we can't afford not to. I mean, we're paying that you, you can estimate to the tune of, of hundreds of dollars per family in a lot of places, uh, a, a sort of invisible, we call it a pothole tax, an invisible cost that people are paying already right now, just from their cars getting beat up and the roads being in bad shape. We are paying a price right now in terms of goods and services being backed up from overburdened infrastructure. And that's only going to get worse to say nothing of the climate related costs of business as usual. So we're going to pay one way or the other. We will pay less if we do it smart and if we do it now. More with Secretary Buttigieg in a minute on Today Explained. Support for the show today comes from Quince. It's a time of year where the weather is changing. Maybe your wardrobe is too. It's time to put away the winter clothes and pull out the summer clothes. But maybe you pull out your summer clothes and you're like, wait, I hate all these clothes. Well, Quince wants to offer you a chance to hit 
F5, you know what I'm saying? A little refresh. Is that still what F5 does? Back in my day, that's what F5 does. Claire White, my colleague here at Vox, has tried Quince. I would say the clothes feel super timeless. A lot of their silhouettes are classic and stay in style for a really long time. I would categorize Quince as a very timeless, approachable brand. You can hit F5 and upgrade your wardrobe this spring by going to quince.com slash explain for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash explained to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash explained. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is so cheap that Mint Mobile knows you think there must be a catch. Mint Mobile says no, there is no catch. And for a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explained. That's mintmobile.com slash explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. There's a $45 upfront payment that's required that's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan, and additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Secretary Buttigieg, infrastructure is clearly a top priority in the Biden administration. Even the former president talked about it quite a bit. All the same, how can you ensure that your vision, which isn't a vision for the next three or four years, but is a vision for the next, you know, generation, has staying power in future administrations? Well, this is one of the reasons why we're paying a lot of attention to policy, not just the big dollar amounts that are getting thrown around, but what do we do to encourage, uh, for example, states uh, before they widen a highway? to check whether that's going to help or whether you're just going to get that many more cars on the road. And is there an alternative that's actually going to be more efficient? Policies that uh, encourage uh, equity and paying attention in a country that has a a really disturbing legacy, for example, of routing highways through black neighborhoods and tearing them apart, um, that this time around the policies encourage uh, those dollars to be spent in ways that unite and and knit people together instead of dividing them. Uh, These are things that, as we put them into place, they can help shape how future dollars are spent, no matter who's signing the checks in, in, in future administrations. Uh, and it's, it's also an obligation to get this right, uh, because, again, going to the example of, of highways and, and what that meant for racial justice, you know, when you put up a piece of physical infrastructure, you know, unlike a lot of other policies that could be theoretically changed overnight, it's there. It's there for a very long time. And so you better get it right the first time. The president's also injecting a lot of climate policy into this massive spending plan. How is that being received? The first thing we've got to recognize is that Every transportation decision is a climate decision, whether we acknowledge that or not. You know, transportation is the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases, as I said earlier. To me, that means we get to be the biggest part of the solution, but only if, if, if we're actually doing policy in the right way. So before we even get to what you would call a, you know, a climate title in a bill, just the way we uh, make it easier or harder to have transit 
uh, in, in a community, the way we support the rollout of electric vehicles and the president's vision for half a million electric vehicle charging stations around the country. All, all of these things are climate policy, uh, which is why so much is at stake in this transportation side of the bill. Then you have other things that we need to do uh, around incentives and, and, and tax policy and energy standards that are uh, being contemplated in, in the other bill that may have to be passed without Republican votes. Um, look, time's up. Uh, I mean, this is no longer a theoretical thing. The recent heat wave in the Pacific Northwest basically shouldn't even be possible. Uh, uh, were it not for climate change, you, you, you saw a transit system shut down because their cables uh, were beginning to melt. Uh, we saw parts of highway buckling in, in the heat. And different parts of the country had different examples uh, of how this climate challenge is upon us. So we need to do two things. We need to curb the emissions, uh, match the president's ambitious goals that he laid out at the climate summit, and stop climate change from getting any worse. And we got to deal with the fact that it's here, which means a resilient infrastructure for roads getting washed out every third year now. Um, maybe we shouldn't build it right where it was. Maybe there's a different way to do it. And so on the resilience side and the climate prevention side, you just can't separate that from what we're doing on, on uh, so-called hard infrastructure. It feels like we're going from like, you know, administration to administration in these in these wild jump cuts where you had Obama pushing forward a lot of climate policy, his his successor uh, basically gutting the EPA. And now you guys are coming in and trying to do a ton of stuff. I mean, how does Washington adjust to these dramatic shifts? Well, that's why our work is not only to win the day in any given congressional vote, but to make sure that we're having a conversation with the American people about how we got here, about what it means to them when we get these policies through. And when you do that, that's when you have staying power. And the example I, I would always give is the Affordable Care Act, right? This was a largely unpopular policy by the time the Obama administration pushed it to, through. But it made such a positive difference for so many people that eventually, even when Republicans had all the level, levers of government, House, Senate, White House, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't destroy it. They, they wouldn't destroy it uh, because the American people knew that it was a, a good policy and that we needed to keep it. I think that gives us a playbook for a lot of things uh, where if we get the policy right and Americans understand why their lives are better because we did it right, then uh, uh, first of all, hopefully, you know, you get, you get some acknowledgement for that, some credit, and you get a uh, return to office and, and you get to keep serving. But even if you don't, even your opponents... Uh, cannot dismantle good policies so easily. You know, we've been talking about infrastructure all week on the show, and a lot of the feedback we've been getting has been a little cynical, a little hopeless. People feel like this country has fallen so far behind, and there is such political division on some of these essential issues that we're never going to catch up. You are not a jilted Washingtonian Coming into this and seeing what potential there is with fresh eyes, what would you say to those people who have little to no hope? I think we're at an extraordinary moment. Uh, I mean, first of all, again, investments that have been talked about for years, decades even, are, are actually about to happen. Um, and technological change is upon us in ways that are incredibly exciting, scary, dangerous even, if we don't get it right. But if we do get it right, the impact of electric vehicles, the impact of automated vehicles, uh, the impact of drones. Again, could cut either way. We've got to get it right. But what that could mean for congestion, for climate, for uh, rural and tribal uh, communities is extraordinary. So I think the 2020s will go down as a 
uh, one of the most transformative decades we've ever had in transportation. And it means we get to leapfrog some of our own old, uh, uh, maybe overburdened systems if we make the right investments and if we're smart about these policy choices. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be doing this if I weren't full of optimism about what's possible. Not, not that it's easy. Let me mention one other thing, which is a lot of uh, other competing, you know, some of our friendly competitors, you look at a lot of European countries that seem to be, and are, light years ahead of us on, on things from the high-speed rail to, you know, uh, bicycle commuting. But if you look at their not-so-recent past, they weren't always that way. There's not something in, you know, Scandinavian DNA that makes them more likely to, to bicycle or build, uh, you know, high-speed high uh, uh, rail or, or have fewer pedestrian deaths, they made policy choices. And those policy choices are in front of us, too. Secretary Buttigieg, thank you so much for your time. Same here. Thank you. Infrastructure Week on Today Explained was brought to you by Amna Al-Sadi, Matthew Collette, Afim Shapiro, Halima Shah, Victoria Chamberlain, Miles Bryan, Will Reed, Emily Sen, and Christian Ayala. Facts were checked by Laura Bullard. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Noam Hassenfeld, who is also the voice of Fatberg. Liz Kelly Nelson is Vox's Veep of Audio. Jillian Weinberger's The Deputy. I'm Sean Ramos for him. Let us know what you thought of the series. Send us an email to todayexplainedvox.com. You can tweet at us, today underscore explained. I'm at Ramos for him. Or you can leave a review most places you listen. Thanks.